uh, going to wait a few minutes or we start off because it's 11.02 already? Yeah, I think we can uh, maybe start uh, introducing about Mentor for Hope. Okay, great. Okay. So, good afternoon everyone and good morning to those who are joining outside of Singapore. My name is Aparna Shekhsena. I'm part of the organizing committee for Mentor for Hope. All right. And it's great to have you all here for our, I think this is our third third masterclass or fireside chat, if you may so call it, right? And before I move on to introduction to our uh, you know, esteemed panel, uh, I, I would like to just uh, share a few things about Mentor for Hope. So uh, we've, uh, we've come beyond halfway now, right? And uh, a few days to go. And uh, let's, yeah, a shout out to our partners. Uh, essentially, uh, thanks for everyone who's... Uh, you know, been supporting us and uh, our panelists are representing these partners also, right? And then um, again, a shout out, we've touched 22K in terms of donations. So please uh, shout out to please uh, keep spreading the word through your network and community for Willing Hearts and Beyond Social Services. Uh, we'd really appreciate and uh, every dollar you donate makes a difference. And I'm sure most of you now know that we've also received uh, the Oscar grant, right? And uh, every $50 that you donate, you get a one-on-one, -on -one, one-hour mentoring sessions. Uh, we're just featuring some of our mentors here, but we have an array of more than 200 uh, mentors. Yeah. Um, and uh, upcoming schedule. So on 9th, we have Yinglantan. So we're already on the 5th. So I'm just... Uh, sharing with you about the upcoming group mentoring schedule. So if you don't, uh, if you're unable to get a one-on-one, -on -one, uh, group mentoring is another way to uh, basically engage with mentors and uh, have discussions about your startups and the challenges you face. And we keep it pretty private with about six uh, founders uh, with a mentor. So uh, these are the upcoming ones. Uh, the team will be reaching out to you for you to book uh, slots. So please do go ahead, right? So yes, I think without further ado, let's start off with our uh, fireside chat or masterclass on fundraising beyond Series A. I'm lucky to have uh, uh, with us, uh, you know, Joseph, Ben, Kevin, and Min, who is also part of our organizing committee. So uh, thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining in. And uh, I would like you to uh, maybe take a minute or minute and a half each and introduce yourself your fund or your organization and the kind of uh, startups that you focus on. Of course, we are discussing beyond CDC. So maybe I start off with Ben, please. Yeah, hi guys, can you hear me? Um, I'm Ben, I'm from uh, Innovant Capital. We are venture lenders. We are 50-50 backed by UOB Bank and Thermasic. We do mainly venture debt uh, to Series A and above companies. And we do it across uh, all Asia, having offices in India, China, and Singapore. Because the Southeast Asia operation started in 2016 and has grown uh, considerably. Um, we're just forever looking for Series A founders and up to try and uh, preach uh, venture debt. Thanks, Ben. Um, Kevin, would you like to go next? Yeah, Aparna, Elise, thanks so much for having us. Um, so my name is Kevin uh, from, from B Capital. We're a global venture capital firm. Uh, that's investing in Southeast Asia as well as across India and the U.S. Um, we focus on, you know, traditionally we've been known to invest in companies at the Series B and C stages. 
Um, but now that we're investing out of our second fund, we have a bit more flexibility to go up or down. Um, but for us, you know, our, our, our mandate is fairly broad. So we focus on companies across logistics, transportation, um, as well as across healthcare, financial services, as what we call consumer enablement. Um, and I think for us, you know, part of our story is our partnership with BCG, uh, where we have them get involved um, and support our portfolio companies um, at the point of scale. Uh, by being able to make introductions to their network um, of corporates, but also being able to help them on the operations side, um, you know, whether it's you know expanding across new products or across new divisions and markets, um, et cetera. Thanks, Kevin. Joseph, would you like to go next? Um, we can't hear you. Joseph, are you? Okay, I think while Joseph is figuring out, um, Min, do you want to go yeah, ahead? Yeah, sure, yeah? I'll do that. Uh, so hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. My name is Min. I'm from uh, CoreGrow. We're a Singapore-based uh, VC fund. Uh, we invest mainly in B2B companies, um, mostly in SaaS, data, and uh, artificial intelligence um, uh, at Series A and Series B, uh, mostly, uh, across Southeast Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, we're industry agnostic. We focus more on, on the business models, hence the, the B2B focus. Um, as for myself, uh, I joined Quagro two years ago, uh, and previously I was uh, in uh, management consulting. Thanks, Min. So um, while we wait for Joseph to join in, I think I can move uh, with my first question at least. And then uh, once Joseph is back, I don't see him yet. Uh, we'll go to Joseph's introduction, right? So Min, I want to start with you. Uh, I think a very basic question, but very critical. What are the essential differences between raising a post-Series A, right? and seed and pre-seed, right? So what are the key differences uh, in terms of fundraising, right? And uh, add-on question, which I've been always very curious about is, how critical is the team at this stage, right? The founding team, right? So uh, yeah. please have a go. And then uh, Ben, Kevin, please I'm do add along. I am yeah? back. I... Oh, Joseph, you're back? <laughs> okay, great. So, so Joseph, I asked the first question. Uh, were you able to hear it? No. I just got okay, name. great. So then fine. Uh, let's first move to your introduction, right? Uh, and then Min will start answering the first question. So then you will get the tone of it. Yeah? Sure. Um, sorry about that, everyone. Uh, good afternoon. I'm from Broader Principal Investments. Uh, we are a corporate venture fund uh, as part of a group, German media conglomerate, Huber Broder Media. Uh, we are a Series B focused investor. And historically, we've been investing in the consumer tech uh, space. So yeah, that's who we are. Um, Let's move on to the questions. Thanks, Joseph. So, Min, back to you. Yeah, so uh, main difference between seed, pre-seed, and, and series and beyond. So, I think even before jumping into the differences, I think uh, if you reach that stage, uh, congrats, because you're part of the, the good half of seed companies that are able to raise a series A or beyond. I think there are a number of statistics out there that you know, showcase the funnel of companies and, unfortunately, how they... Uh, manage or not to raise a subsequent fundraising. So if you have been able to raise your seed fund, raising seed, seed, round, seed round, and then you go to Series A, then first of all, congrats. Um, then when it comes to differences, I think 
the, the main change, at least from our perspective, is that you, you move um, from the idea, usually, which is, or the POC, proof of concept, which is um, by design what you do at seed and pre-seed. And then when you move to Series A and beyond, it's more, you have a proven market fit to some extent. Um, you have uh, defined the customer base if you're on B2B, you have uh, some churn, um, which is stabilizing. If you're on more B2C, then you have uh, a, a, customer, a user base that is a, a bit more significant. You have um, engagement from your users if you're on an app, for instance. So you have that sense of, I went past the proof of concept and I have certain uh, data that shows that there is a product market fit in what I'm trying to do. Secondly, I think uh, what we look at usually is that you, you have proven economics, whether it's the, the gross margin uh, of your business model, whether it's the cost of acquisition of your customers, if you're more in B2C. The, in the early stage and early years of a company, early month even, at seed stage, uh, this, kind, this kind of metrics tend to change a lot because of course you're adapting the business model, you're trying to find out which is the best way to acquire your first customers and so on. But by the time of Series A and Series B, these kind of metrics and economics, they stabilize as well. And you, you, usually the, the companies at that stage, they have um, some data from previous months or previous quarters that are quite are showing the same trends. Um, and last, for us, especially for us uh, being tech investors on the technology side of things, um, by the time of Series A, Series B, again, you have a, a robust technology. I think, um, and it's not a red flag by any means, but usually seed stage companies sometimes you have the so-called fake it until you make it, right? So you're doing a lot of uh, bits and pieces with, uh, you know, so sometimes you have external consultants helping you, and uh, which is perfectly fine to show that the, the, the concept is working and the product is working. But by the time you reach Series A, Series B, um, the technology has to be quite uh, robust and, and, uh, and working, obviously, for your customer. So, yeah, the, for me, that would be the, the main differences. And how critical is the team? At any stage, I think the team, and I think we'll all agree around the table, uh, is critical. Um, uh, even though, as I said, if you reach Series A, you're in the, the good half, um, it's still quite early uh, in the journey of a, of a founding team and a, of a startup. So the team uh, still very, very critical, of course, because many pivots can still happen along the way. Uh, many hurdles will show up, even if you manage to raise your Series A, even if you have a lot of cash, um, having a great team is definitely critical, um, even at this stage, yes. Okay, great. Um, who wants to have a go next to add on to what uh, Min shared? Either of the three of you. Yeah, yeah Ben. Yeah. yeah, no, I'd just like to add, um, I should have raised this earlier. I think venture debt is industry and sector agnostic as well. We look at all companies, all industries, everything. And uh, I was, I've been looking at these things uh, Four year, since four years ago, uh, 0.16, and we fund alongside a lot of Series A rounds. And so the ob mine's, mine's an observation. The observation of, of the difference between the Series A and the seed kind of fundraise, although the nomenclature may differ, is I think I'll boil it down to one thing, it's just certainty, right? In Series A, you have more certainty among on everything, business model, revenue metrics, team or that, but you have more certainty. You can go and tell the investor, yeah, I'm certain that if I do this, I'm like might get more revenue. Whereas in the seed stage, you have less certainty. I think that's the, that's the key thing. That's the key thing that I do, that I'll, I'll see. Um, of course, each business model is different how they, how, how they define certainty and all that. Yeah. And regards to team, I think um, the 
team is always important, every stage. Uh, but I think the difference between Series A versus the seed, seed more or less looking at the founder himself and his co-founder. When you reach the Series A, sometimes you tend to look at the founder and his group of people. And you, certain things you want to look out for is kind of, if the founder is, uh, seemed to be weak in financial numbers, does he have a good CFO? Seem to be strong in, uh, seem to be a good visionary, does he have a good CEO? This kind of dynamic is start to look at at Series A. So that's how, it, that's I think the differences in team uh, A and C. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Um, Kevin and Joseph, anything to add? Yeah, so maybe I'll go first. So, um, so we've been, I think ben, ben and Min have been talking about differences between seed and Series A. And probably I'll, I'll go a bit into the difference between Series A and Series B. So even between Series A and Series B, there's quite a bit of difference in terms of how we look at the companies. Um, so I think the easy way to be, from, I think I'll give an analogy. I think in seed, when you raise seed money, you're, you're raising money to build the rocket. When you raise Series A money, you're, you're raising money to test the rocket. And when you're raising Series B, I'm giving you rocket fuel. So you better make sure your rocket don't blows up in mid-air. So I think when we do due diligence, we are trying to find out whether your rocket will blow up in mid-air before we sell you the rocket fuel. <laughs> uh, I think ben, ben can identify with me here a bit. Um, he's also selling rocket fuel, right? Venture that. Um, so we're giving money for you to, 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 to send more rockets into space, um, but, bef but you need to prove that your rocket can take off. And then how we, we do that is we, we look at contribution margins, right? We focus a lot on the, the unit level contribution margins or what a lot of people call unit economics. And we, yeah. we stack that against your cost of acquisition, both on the demand and supply side, if you're a, a double-sided marketplace, or if you're a triple-sided, then we look at all, all costs of acquisition and onboarding, uh, users and supply side to your platform. Um, and then we compare that against the contribution margins. How many orders or how many sessions or how many units you need to, you need to sell or, or fulfill before you can break even on your, your acquisition costs, right? Fully loaded acquisition costs. If, yeah. if that, that takes more than one year for us, that, that is kind of a risk because if you take more than one year to recoup your cost of acquisition, who knows what happened in, in the next three to six months. Uh, as you can see, COVID happened. And a lot of people are not recouping their acquisition costs and they start to go into cash flow issues. Um, so I think fundamentally, that's the key difference between Series A and Series B. Uh, at least, I, I'm not a Series A investor, so this is just me sure. looking from the side. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks, thanks, Joseph. Kevin, anything to add? Yeah, I'll just add you know, one point at a bit higher level. Um, and I think it's the fact that you know, whether you're at the seed, Series A and above, you know, the need to tell a compelling story is critically important and will remain critically important throughout. You know, we are all in a, you know, very much a forward-looking business. And so the need to be able to, you know, help the investors understand what is the market opportunity, where are you today, and how are you going to get there um, to, you know, the place that you're aiming to get to in, say, three to five years. And so I think, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, we, we just mentioned, they're proof points of how are you going to get there. And so how can you build your case? How can you build the argument without, from an investor standpoint, we can you know, extrapolate from those data points to make a compelling case that we can sell internally to our investment committee. Um, I think that's very important. And I think as we go through this panel, I'm happy to share more kind of insights as to how we think about that approach as well. Thanks, Kevin. 
Okay, so my next question is essentially directed at you, uh, Ben, and please bear with me. It's a long question with many parts, so we'll have you speaking for a bit because you're the one, I mean, your organization looks into venture debt, right? And that's how you're different from the other three who are part of the panel today. So um, when should startups use venture debt, right? And can it replace equity? The question tied to this is what is the market for this instrument and how is it made available, right? And if you could also share about the main investors in the landscape. So a bit long question, right? But uh, I think very critical because uh, this is something I think our audience will really appreciate because it's very different from equity. Yeah. Wow. Actually, I got I, I, this question, right? You can talk for like a few days, hours. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, try try to, to. I try to distill it, okay? I, I try my best to distill uh, the main point. Okay, first of all, does it replace equity? Well, I don't think so. Not at all. Because venture debt is a loan that must be repaid back typically two or three years. Equity is longer term, right? And a little bit bigger. So I don't think it replaces yeah. equity. In exchange for, of course, having a, taking a loan that is repaid over two to three years, the existing shareholders have to dilute a lot less, right? And so, okay, so that's so I don't think it replaces equity. So when should a startup raise it? Wow, this is a burning question, Apana. This one has been asked in many different ways for a few years. So I actually have been thinking about this. I'll, I'll, I'll say it like this. Venture debt, venture debt is a loan that I give you money now and you get repaid maybe in two to three years time. So essentially, for to the company, uh, you're trying to solve a timing difference in which you have to spend now and get value later. And that's from a company's perspective, when you should raise venture debt. Now the ecosystem has been uh, really, really creative with this because value is whatever the founder, the investor says is value. You know, classically, if you read the textbook, value means profit. But some people come and tell me value also means valuation. Value means product. Value means customer. Wow, I, I, I give up. I don't know. Every, every day I hear new things. So but I'll say you should raise venture debt when you, when you think you can, when you need money to spend now and get value later. That would just, and the value could of course justify the cost and the repayment. So that's generally it. Uh, from the venture lender, we are looking, we're looking at uh, repayments rather than valuation. First, we, because we, want to, we are looking at the company's ability to repay. So if you are losing money, then how, how do you repay? Well, we look at your cash runway. We look at the prospect of the company becoming profitable. And then we look at the prospect of it raising more money, right? So usually the comp usually companies are much companies find it much easier to raise venture debt after the of course they identified the use they they kind of find it easier to raise venture debt nearer to a round of funding because the runway is longer or when they are they have sufficiently uh reduced the burn the other thing about the venture lender that's very different from the bank lender or the traditional lenders we also factor in that the company is backed by investors who will continue backing the company so we also look at the investor, the investors, and whether they will continue backing. So we 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 kind of uh, look at that. So what's the who are the investors? Uh, Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia's venture debt ecosystem. Uh, I I hope has grown. Well, in two zero one six, we were established uh, by of course Tomasic and UOB mainly because a lot of uh, a, a lot of companies have no debt. Venture stage companies are growing fast, they're well back, but they have no debt option. So, we decided to start this way of lending venture debt, which is actually uh, practiced in the Silicon Valley. 
So we have been first spending a lot of time educating the market and growing. Uh, today, uh, we, I, I like to think, I like to think we still are the biggest in Southeast Asia. Uh, but I think the concept is gaining a bit more traction. Uh, certain governments have started to uh, come up with schemes to do venture debt, uh, notably Malaysia. You can find Malaysian Malaysian debt ventures as a venture debt scheme to help. Uh, Singapore has a Singapore's venture debt program. Uh, some banks have used this scheme to try and explore venture debt, and today you can see uh, minimal activity, well, some activity of banks trying to do venture debt uh, to some startups. But I think, I think uh, the the market still has a lot of legs to go. Uh, the as more and more founders know how to use venture debt, there'll there'll probably be more investors. But right now, it, there's in Southeast Asia, there would be us. There is uh, MD, MDV for Malaysian companies. There's a Singapore government a scheme that helps Singapore companies through its banks. And I I should mention there is a, there is also a new fund, um, a smaller new fund called Genesis. And then um, let's see how I I don't know how else it will go. Um, okay. I hope that the ecosystem grows really, yeah. as a, as a, so that so that the instrument is more well understood. I mean, we are not a replacement for equity. We are yeah. we are the additional rocket fuel that that you, you give after Joseph gives the rocket fuel. We're the booster <laughs> rocket fuel. Like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, so, that's, a, that's a great way to put that. Yeah. Um. So Ben, still still with you. Right, this term is often used, so common, abused, valuation, right? So I think you, you really uh, talked about this point of value versus valuation, right? So you look at the value versus the valuation, but please tell me from your experience, how would a venture debt uh, you know, uh, fund organization look at the valuation of a startup and how would they rationalize it and how different it is from the other equity approaches? Yeah. That, that actually is the most different. So the short answer actually on paper is, no, we don't look at valuation. But after doing this for some time, can't don't look at valuation. <laughs> or do we, how do we rationalize it? First of all, let's put it out there. We don't value the companies. Like an equity investor may do the comps. He, may attack, he values the company and says the company is worth this. We don't value the company. But we look at the valuation to see whether the, the, com- the, companies, that, the companies with this valuation uh, is able to, I mean, factoring in all the metrics, factoring all the things we see now, can it grow such that it can achieve a better valuation in the next round? Because nobody wants to raise a down round, right? Yeah. So, so, we, so how do I say, we don't value the company, but we observe the valuation very closely, right? And then after that, we kind of splice that with, uh, by, with, by talking and researching to investors of what they think valuation should be. And then we kind of form a we kind of form an ever changing view of um, you know where the valuation where where we try to be a barometer to find where the valuations are headed and where it is, so that I mean, if a company says hey I'm going to raise a next round at billions and billions of dollars, we kind of know that one that that is not true, or another company comes and says that I'm going to raise another round at like few hundred thousand dollars, maybe that is too low. This kind of thing. That's how we treat valuation. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's a bit different. We 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 don't actually we, we don't we don't see uh, how how it can grow. We kind of see where the market is going. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Ben. 
So my next question is for the equity guys, right? So again, from your experience and maybe starting with you, Kevin, what in your view is a fair valuation, right? Like how would you gauge it? Because again, these things, you know, are skyrocketing, even though the rocket might still be on the ground. So um, starting with you and then please Joseph and Min add along. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting question. And by way of background, I was, you know, before coming into venture, I was investing at a slightly later stage as well as, you know, being a public market investor. And the way we think about it then is, you know, looking at the cash flows, the future cash flows, and then discounting that forward, um, or discounting that back to get a sense of what the valuation of the company is today at the present value. But of course, when you're looking at startups, especially at the A, B, C rounds where people are not profitable, um, then how do you value a company? And I think a lot of people will take different view, um, but there are a lot of factors at play. Um, of course, you want to be able to balance what is the actual fair value versus what are investors actually willing to pay for to get into a round, but also at the same time, be able to make the returns um, that, you know, the certain thresholds that you need to achieve um, with the money that you're investing. So it's a bit of a confluence of those things. Um, but I think, you know, when we think about valuation, we would, of course, think about it in terms of certain metrics. Um, at a high level, you might think of it in terms of GND or revenue, or even on the EBITDA basis for the ones that are generating EBITDA. Um, and we would benchmark those multiples across different types of companies in the region or other markets, um, as well as the valuations that we're seeing from other investors in companies that are alike, um, you know, in the months or even years before. And so it's a bit of a triangulation exercise that you would have to go through to get a sense for what is a reasonable valuation, um, you know, for the type of investor that you are. Thanks, Kevin. Joseph or Min, which one of you wants to go first? Min, why don't you go first? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think um, as uh, Kevin mentioned, it, it's really, uh, a combination of factors, uh, different data points, whether it's different markets, comparables in the same region or not. Uh, sometimes uh, different uh, industries, but similar business models, for instance, could help as well. Um, I think at the end of the day, what defines a fair valuation is really when it's a win-win for both the founding team and the investors, because it's, um, it's a long-term partnership, right? Um, uh, venture debt, as uh, Ben mentioned, is a bit more on the shorter term. Uh, two, three years, you need to repay. Equity, we invest, we stay seven, nine, sometimes even more than 10 years uh, in the company as shareholders. So the entry point of the valuation is really going to set the tone for the next decade that you spent uh, working together, hopefully. So FAIR in this case is really about making it work for everyone uh, from the founder side, uh, whether it's dilution, whether it's uh, uh, giving a value to the shares that they have in the company at that particular point in time. And for the investors really, what do they think this particular investment can bring in terms of return for them? Uh, what potential exits it could generate? Um, these are really the things that we think about when we talk about valuation. Okay, I guess it's my turn now. Uh, both Kevin and Min have covered a lot, of the, a lot of great points, so I don't really have much to add uh, here. So I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it by saying that valuation is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and it's the dynamics of valuation is very similar to why you pay, pay a higher price for an iPhone, usually. <laughs> At the earliest stage you go, that, that, that element actually becomes more pronounced. If it's a space that's deemed to be very, to be very uh, that have very high potential, and, and a lot of investors are piling in, 
there's there's sometimes always a fear of fear of missing out, and then and the rounds get very competitive, and then again valuation is in the eye of the beholder. It depends on how much you want to pay to get in, and and how much what's the opportunity cost you you price on missing out, right? So you, when you weigh those two, and then you come to equilibrium, then you get to a valuation. Of course, it's also relative to what comparable companies in the space are getting. And then you price the company accordingly. And, and of course, you try to do your modeling and make sure you get your target return, uh, which is I know it's different for different funds, but it usually ranges about 20, 25% IRR to 30, 40% IRR to be first quarter. So yeah, I hope that answers the question. It's always a very tricky one. Thanks, Joseph. I had, uh, so I have this really pet question that I want to ask and it's again on valuation, but maybe I'll you know, keep it for later because I think we've gone around this uh, topic a bit. I do hope I, in the interest of time, I do get to ask because the audience is asking a lot of interesting questions. So let me move to actually the fundraising part now, right? So this is for Series A and of course, Joseph, you said you specialize in Series B, so you can um, use that to answer. But the open question to all four of you is how should the uh, founding team, right? Because I think at this stage, the whole team is important and not just the founder. So how should the team prepare for fundraising post, uh, you know, Series A? What are certain very specific critical things that really stand out, right? So I would really appreciate some good pointers from your experiences. And uh, then again, I mean, any of you can start off, but uh, hoping to provide some good insights to the audience here. Who's going first? Yeah, Ben. Yes, great. Oh, no. I, oh, okay. I'll just go first. <laughs> actually, I, actually, I just moused over the mute button. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay, there are some hygiene... I mean, I mean about, it's about fundraising tips, right? Well, how should a fund... What, what should the fundraiser... Uh, what, what should the companies be prepared? Okay. Yes. So there are certain... Okay, there are certain hygiene factors that you need first. I mean, so the hygiene factors, right? It's kind of like you have to come prepared with an investor deck, financial model, of course. But I think one thing is you have to be fluent in your delivery of the story. And it is the story, right? It's all because when, when, you, when you come to the meeting, you have to say the story. And you have to be fluent about it. And the moment you show up at, uh, the show, at a meeting and then you, you deliver a story, a story and then the story doesn't make sense, you pause too much and all that, you start to create some doubt. So that, that, that's not so good. So, of course, investor deck, financial model, but fluent delivery, the story is very important. So that one, that one, I think, gets people down. And uh, the other thing I would say is, I think uh, in preparation for founders, sometimes it's good to be honest with yourself. If you honestly are not good with like operations or numbers, then don't bother. My advice is just take your CFO along. Just have him sit there and any financial questions, let him answer. That will be better. <laughs> or some, so sometimes, so sometimes uh, when the company comes, they come as a they come as a team, right? The CFO, the founder, or the founder, the COO, and precisely because of this, because people have different strengths, so you play to each other's strengths, you create a fluent story, and then you can now you 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 can now like stand apart from quite a lot of companies. Uh, once again, yeah, these are hygiene factors first, right? Other. Um, what about think, the mindset? Oh, the mindset. Yeah, the mindset. One 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 mindset is um. It's all different for each investor. So I think the, for, for going to a first investor meeting, Series A, the mindset should be your goal, to, your goal for meeting number one is to get to meeting number two. That's it. Because you don't know what meeting number two will be, what they will ask, 
nothing. Your main goal for your first meeting is to get to the next meeting. And the main goal for the next meeting is to get to the third meeting. And you keep going until you get money. So you can't plan it. It's a process. That's it. That's just it. Because you say one thing, the investor will react one way, you change. And then you say another thing, the investor will react one way, and you change. Even we change. So I would just say the mindset is be prepared, know everything, play to your strengths, and then don't expect money in meeting number one. Expect to go to meeting number two. <laughs> so it, it never happens at this stage that you get the money at meeting number one? Uh, no, not really. I, I, don't, okay. I think there's meeting number one, few emails, meeting number two, three, four. You don't know. Like I said, you don't know. It's a process. So I, okay. think, I think a lot of people have acknowledged that fundraising is a process. There's no, there, there's not, there's no checklist of stuff that you need to that you go. Every, every, as I said, every investor is different. Everybody's fund is different. The skill is different. The view is different. So you have to adapt like that. So open-mindedness is very important. That's what I feel. Okay. Thanks. Who's next? Yeah, maybe just to, yeah. Yeah, just to build on what Ben said, I think um, a very good point is um, do some homework before going to the first meeting, uh, whether it's on the firm, uh, whether it's on the individual. Because as Ben said, uh, every firm is different. Uh, we all have different investment thesis. When, even with Ben, we have different instruments to invest. So you should know why uh, you are going to meet that particular fund. And whoever you're meeting in that team, um, do some research, try to see what investments they have made in the past and to understand how they think and what they are going to look at. Um, I think beyond the hygiene factor that Ben mentioned, which uh, there are plenty of resources out there and uh, should be quite easy to access. I think in terms of mindset, uh, especially currently in the COVID slash post-COVID uh, period, um, there, are, there are a few things that I would like to point out. First is know how much cash you need when you're fundraising. Um, just don't have a broad idea of, yeah, I'm raising between three to six million. Um, that's at best a wild guess. And uh, at worst, you don't really know why you're raising that much amount of money. So you should have a clear view on why you're raising that amount, what you're going to do with it and explain it very clearly to the investors because it's going to mean investors' money at the end of the day. A second point is, in terms of mindset, again, is really trying to find the right partner. Uh, I think I emphasized it previously, especially for equity investors. We are going to be in there for the next 10 years, potentially together. So it's not just about raising money. It's, really, it's about really right, finding the right partner to work with you, to be your advisor, to be your board member, and to be your top partner to help you grow your company. So really having that mindset in the discussion and not just trying to convince the other party that you're a good company, which most likely you are, but beyond that, trying to find the right person to work with you for the next decade is really important. And I think last is to be open-minded, as Ben said. Um, it's, it's at the end of the day, even though it's a pitch and hopefully there will be several meetings, uh, it's a discussion, right? And investors like to brainstorm a lot. They like to find new ideas. They like to discuss and to challenge founders. Because ultimately, the goal is really to um, hopefully make you a better company. And discussing is, is part of that process, even during the pitch meetings, even at the first meeting. Um, investors will ask questions to understand better your business model and also to try to find new ideas for, to helping you. So I think really that um, open-mindedness is, is really important. Okay. Kevin, Joseph? Yeah. Yeah, to follow up on that, I think, you know, uh, great points um, from Min and Ben. Uh, one thing I would highlight is that, you know, when you think about having that first meeting, uh, let's say you're raising for a Series B, 
that first meeting, um, at least from my standpoint, should happen much earlier on. Um, so I think for us, you know, for B Capital, we like to establish our relationships early so that, you know, we have a good sense of the type of founder you are, the type of company that you're running. By the time you're out of position, you're raising your Series B. And if you take it from that perspective, you're also doing a lot of work leading up to that. Um, because, you know, I think, I think one of your biggest advocates when you're at the point of fundraising will be the data that you can present. You know, your operating history, your key metrics, and how that has trended over time. Um, and whether that tells a clear story about the type of company you are, as well as the type of company that you're trying to become. Um, and, you know, for that data to work at the point of your fundraise, you, you need to have thought about that a much earlier on. Um, the way you cut it, the way you look at it, um, you know, I think that is very important. And so, you know, leverage on your early stage investors um, that are on your cap table, you know, help them leverage them to help you know get introductions to later stage investors and then get a sense for how these people think about your specific business uh, what are the key metrics that they look for so that you can start to think about and prepare um, thanks kevin really great joseph anything to add on to what has been shared i think you're on mute <laughs> Sorry, I always forget. So I like I just I like to, I like to wrap this up by reminding everyone that uh, fundraising is a relationship building process, and we are all humans with our own biases. So never forget that that you're dealing with humans. Uh, VCs are humans. Uh, so when whenever you fundraise, try not to go in cold. Try to always go in with a warm intro at least. Um, if you like uh, what Kevin mentioned approach your existing shareholders for help to get a warm intro to, to which investors they think you should meet or should have an early chat with, start the relationship building process early, get them excited about what you're building, show them some early numbers, do a tease, you know, like a tease. Don't show everything, do a little tease here and there, get them very excited and then they chase you rather than you chasing them. Don't do it like a Tinder, right? Where you swipe right on every investor <laughs> you see, but, but try to do it like what you do at a club where you try to, you know, do that dating dance. So I think that's, that's how I wrap it up. Keep it interesting okay. for everyone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fine. Well noted. Not a Tinder, yeah. Maybe more like a marriage portal, right? Where you go in with a Yeah, you need to go in and do your, your meeting dance, you know? Yeah. And show what you have. Okay. Great. Um, I'm gonna segue into actually some of the audience questions, right? Because I think they will uh, blend well into the discussion we are having. So while we were talking about uh, unit economics and we were also talking about proof of concept, so I'm combining the question from Grace and Badai. Is, is it fair to say that at Series A, around Series A, uh, it's okay to just have the proof of concept or should you be more advanced than that? Okay, so that's the first uh, question. The second one tied to that is, do you, are you suggesting that uh, unit economics play a larger role only around Series B or do they hold weight even before? So, yeah. I think Ben, you want to start off from your view, and then let's have uh, the others pitch in. Okay, so the first question, sorry, can you repeat the first question is about series? Yeah, a. the first question was, uh, should series A uh, be at proof of concept, is it fine? Or at series A, you're expecting it to be beyond the proof of concept stage? Okay, so I mean, the common wisdom will tell you series A is not supposed to be proof of concept, yet you got to admit that sometimes you find proof of concept or seed companies raising a lot of money. So I think the, pers the, the, the perspective, right, you should, 
the perspective should be like this. You are at a certain stage of company, let series, whatever. Who are your target investors? What are they looking for? And why, 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 we, say that, why we say that the series A guy funds, uh, series A needs to have like unit economics because most of the series A funds and the or series A and B funds, they want to look at unit economics. So therefore now you have to get unit economics. If you, but if you can find somebody who's willing to give you a lot of money without unit economics, then you don't have to. But I don't think the market is like that. Right now, most of the, most of the Series A investors, they, they, they want to look at some unit economics. So, so right now it's like that. But I think, the, I think the perspective is not like you must have unit economics or, series A, or you must have this, must have that. It's more like what are the investors looking for? That's the perspective that's more accurate and more, more helpful. Um, so, okay, so more of understanding the investor sentiment around that yeah. period, right? You you need to be you need to have the hang of that. Yes, correct. Yeah. So okay. the second question about Series B, right? Yeah, Series B and unit economics. So does but you already answered. You said you unit economics can will matter even at Series A, right? It's about what your investor is looking for and what is the general general investor sentiment, right? Yep, so you need to be correct. aware of. So I, w I would like, I mean, I'd like to add that it's been A and B, right? When you reach B, uh, you've, you've purportedly been operating for a longer time. You got more data to prove your uni economics. Uni economics is not uh, static. It's, and in my experience, it keeps changing. Like one day it's good, it's bad. And, and sometimes companies are still finding out what's the secret sauce. Series A, you have less data to prove it. You may have one year of sales and say that, yeah, this is how it looks. This is my margin. By the time you reach Series B, you have more. So... <laughs> So, the, so there, is a, there is a difference there. So it's important, I guess, for a company to record this data and present it during Series B to validate whatever it says. So that one, that's what I like to add. I mean, don't underestimate the importance of data. The most important is data. Okay, thanks. So yeah, who, who would like to add? Um, Min or Kevin? Or I think Ben has covered it off. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, Ben summarized it quite now. Okay, great. So then uh, let me move to the next question, which is more about the, you know, the current scenario. And it's been, uh, I think, on most people's mind is, so what is the current investment, uh, investor sentiment, right? Let's talk about Southeast Asia. Let's stick to our part of the world. Uh, for post-Series A and Series B investors, right? What is your sentiment? And are there certain verticals that are more attractive at this stage? You know, which are those if you could share? And which are verticals that, you know, you shouldn't even bother about? Is travel one of those? I don't know. So, so please do share and also with respect to your own portfolios, right? So I'd love to have some insights on that. And... Uh, yeah, who do, who do I start with? Maybe Min, since you were the last one with your mic unmuted. Sure. Um, investment sentiment. Um, I mean, uh, very curious to hear about my colleagues around the table as well. I think for us, um, at least when it comes to investment thesis, we haven't changed really. Um, our focus is still B2B. Uh, it's still around SaaS, data, artificial intelligence. So there was no change in the way um, I mean, in, in the spaces at which uh, we are looking at. Um, but it's true that in terms of how we look at companies, we spend even more time looking at the fundamentals, uh, which we are already doing. But I think this COVID has shown to us all um, that, you know, uh, having very robust fundamentals is critical for a company to um, face any kind of uh, event. Um, and 
especially a pandemic. So that would be one thing that we are putting an even stronger emphasis on. But beyond that, I think this COVID has had both positive and negative impact on several spaces, right? Uh, of course, travel, everyone thinks about it, but if you think about it even beyond that, everybody is going to travel again someday. So I wouldn't say that travel is doomed by any means. Uh, on the other hand, telehealth, um, teleeducation has have been growing up crazily during these past few months. Um, but you could also um, raise the question of how is it going to be sustainable over time? How is it going to, you know, be sustainably growing and so on and so forth. So you have positive momentum, you have negative momentum. Um, at least um, Quagro, we try not to be too much influenced by that and really focus on the fundamentals of the businesses that we are uh, assessing. Okay. So a proper steady path to profitability, yeah? Which yes. has become so critical, yes. Joseph. Yeah, so uh, I'd like to add on to Min's point that don't, be overly focused on chasing investor sentiment. Investors are fickle-minded and we change our minds every day we wake up. So there's no point in chasing that sentiment anyway. Build a business you would like to build based on what you're passionate about. I think that is the most important thing that never change, be it a crisis or bull or bear time. And, and quoting a Chinese saying, heroes are only born in times of crisis. So this, is a, this time, this time is, is, is test of leadership. So step up and prove that you, you, you are, you're up to the challenge and show that to the investors. So that's what we are looking for in, in this time. Like how are you turning uh, the, pandemic, the, pandemic, the, difficult, the challenges uh, posed by the pandemic into, into opportunities and, and doubling down on, on areas where you're starting to see some success, attraction, getting, pulling ahead, pulling ahead of your competitors and peers. Um, I, think, I think that's what we really want to see rather than um, blindly chasing certain teams because as we've seen, uh, teams come and go. Co-working was all the red three years ago and look what happened now. So yeah. That's why I think that's what I remind, want to remind everyone. Okay, sure. Um, Kevin, Ben, anything to add or it's been rounded off well by these guys? Um, well, in our surveillance actually, yeah, it's actually a very good point raised by the, 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 the committee, but I mean the, the, the panel. I think it's not so much, the sentiment is more shaped, is, is ever, is more shaped by um, ideas uh, rather than just like this industry is good that industry is has been it has been shaped constantly uh and the i, I have to say joseph is on the money here is it kept changing it, it just kept on changing even even uh my commit even our our internal sentiment versus external sentiment from march to april to may to june it looks very different because because the world has changed that far so one thing is the rate of change is very fast and I think you have to be prepared for that. So flexibility is key, I think. Uh, in this crisis especially, flexibility is very key. Um, for example, if uh, you are operating in a geography which is like having few cases, COVID cases, it's okay, you still can operate, you, you, you still do your e maybe an e-commerce business and then suddenly the government locks down everything, now you have no business. So what will you do? You have to change. And then, and similarly, uh, sometimes they ban, they ban travel for this country and now you have no business, but then they're going to open up that country again. So I would like to add that um, keyword is flexibility. You got to flex up and down, change and pivot much faster than um, usually. And, and, that, and, and that, that, that I think will, will capture a lot of investors' uh, attention. 
Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Um, Kevin, anything to add? Yeah, just a quick one. I fully agree with what's been said before, but I would also highlight that, you know, with the increased level of caution in the markets um, and the fickle nature of the investors, um, where can you see, you know, a certain level of stability? And I think, you know, a lot of, oftentimes investors will look for how the market has shifted, how it has changed in times of crisis like this, and who are starting to emerge um, as the leader or who are on the pathway of really taking that market share. Um, so I think if you're you know, in a position to consolidate, um, really stand out above the crowd um, based on certain factors, um, tailwinds that you might have, um, that could really play a part in driving in investor interest um, to your sector or to your company specifically. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm going to move to a question by Bernard and I'm going to try and combine two of his questions because I think uh, I hopefully I'm able to do a good job combining. So it was in the news, right? Kopi Kanangan raised 109 million in these times. And I think everyone just sort of fell off their chairs, including me. Right. <laughs> and uh, so the question from uh, Bernard is like, what did they do right? Like, how were they able to raise this? And this ties down to the point that actually there are startups that are able to directly move into a series A, right? They are just so prepped and on the point and they're able to go to series A and actually raise huge amounts. So like, how are they able to do that? And any, any, um, you know, views on how Kopi Kanangan was able to do this 109 million at this stage, right? Uh, for something that is just basically take away coffee. Yeah. So again, like all your thoughts, please go crazy, right? No holds barred. I, I'm going Just to say something quite controversial here. I'll say they, they have luck on their side. Timing, sure. being, being in the right place at the right time and talking to the right people, that gets them the valuation, that kind of valuation. Um, yeah. Confluence of all these factors to make it look very sexy. I'll say luck plays a lot of, unfortunately, luck plays a huge factor here. Um, and there are great businesses, great companies, great teams that have met that, uh, unfortunately, not not fund not venture capital fundable, just because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. I've seen that so many times. So it's really just down to that. Okay. Then um, yeah, I like to add add one thing. I would like to add. It's not just luck. It's uh, luckin. Luckin coffee. That's <laughs> you know why okay. because yeah because you see luckin coffee was able to IPO right, and then somebody says I'm Kopi Kanagan. I can do the same yeah. thing. Done deal. Yeah. So non luck is lucky. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Ben, you're smiling a lot. Do you want to add something? <laughs> uh, no, actually, I would like to ask Kevin because I think B Capital has invested. So I'm, I'm really yeah, curious to Kevin, hear. Was <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I can't disagree with Ben's statement there. Um, no, but, uh, you know, it, it is a mix of a lot of things. But, you know, fundamentally, it's about the market opportunity and backing the right team. Um, you know, if you look on, you know, look at the cap table and look at the type of investors that came in, um, you see a number of growth stage investors and how they got conquered. Um, and it goes back to a lot of the things that we we're discussing earlier um, around the types of data uh, that we we're seeing. You know, when we cut into the unit economics, when we look at the same stores, you know, growth, um, look at the cohorts. You know, I think those kind of things were compelling. Um, and of course, valuation, I think also as we have discussed earlier, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder as well. Um, in the types of amount that you need to raise to chase the market opportunity. Um, so, you yeah, know, it is a very interesting one. Um, you know, it's fun to be along for the ride, but um, <laughs> I'll leave it at that for now. Okay, great. 
So, um, yeah. Okay, so then I think no more comments in this. So let me move to the next one. Ju Kuang has actually asked because uh, we, had, uh, we had discussed that uh, the team is super important, right? So he's asking how, how can you manage the key man risk during fundraising, right? Key person risk and any advice from your you know, personal experiences in managing key man risks. So every 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 series A, series B startup has key man risk. So let's not let's not let's put it out there first. Every but every if the CEO one day disappears, the company is going to crumble, um, because yes. it's early stage company. Yes, it's the reality, right? So I think I think I think the most important thing is to demonstrate awareness of where your gaps are, and then how you're trying to and how what are you doing now today to mitigate those those gaps in your team, right? And I think that's that's the most important. If, for example, your team is uh let's say the gap is in, in you don't have a CFO, and and and, and your, your fundraising is a skill set. Uh, so and, and the fundraising skill set is is a less developed in the team. If, if you show that you have awareness about that, say and, and tell the investors that we're currently now trying to train someone uh, from a VP of finance to step up and, and do this. Uh, come meet him, meet this guy. He's gonna he's gonna now lead the session and, and tell you our story. So show the investors that that you are aware of the gap and and, and how you're training people to fill in those gaps or whether you, how you're looking out to hire someone to, to bridge the gap. I think, at least for me, that's what I like to see. Rather than gloss over everything and say, that's fine, we can do everything, we are all good. No, that's, that's never the case. There's always issues. Yeah. Okay. Um, any add-on points on key man risks? Okay, none. Yeah. Um, no, maybe just yeah. one. Yeah, just yes, one. And okay. I think it's, it's, it's actually building on what Ben said uh, a bit earlier, which was, by the time you reach Series A, Series B, even though, of course, it's still centered around the founding team, you have the extended management team, which is super important in the way we look at companies. So, of course, um, you know, having the founder stay on board as, as long as possible is uh, something that we are all very cautious about. And I mean, even not going into the technicality of it, but you have terms and, and you know, in the shareholders agreement that you can put there to ensure that the founders will stay on board uh, long enough. But definitely it's, 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 it goes both ways, as in you will look at the management team, extended team, to see how the founders have uh, filled some gaps that they had uh, assessed in their own capabilities, and also in their ability to build a great team around them uh, to mitigate that uh, key man risk. So I think Ben made a very good point earlier, which was it's definitely important beyond the founders, either single or several founders, but also the whole management team by the time of Series A or Series B. Thanks, man. Um, so I think we have enough time to come to my my burning question, which has been mulling over my head for days, actually, is uh, the fact that why do Silicon Valley startups, you know, invite such a high valuation compared to us in this part of the world, right? Why does it happen? Um, some insights on that. And should the founders here be using that as a benchmark in their negotiations and discussions? Or should they not, right? So I'd like to tap onto your um, experiences, and please, if you have any anecdotes to share, please do share. Yeah. Kevin, do you want to have a go first? Yeah, happy to share. You know, we have a global investment committee, so you know, oftentimes sitting here in Singapore, we get a, you know a glimpse into the deals that are happening in the U.S. Um, oftentimes coming out of Silicon Valley. But you know, funny enough, I would kind of put that on the head and say. Our colleagues in the U.S. oftentimes are scratching their heads more frequently um, about the valuations in this part of the world 
than we are about the valuations coming out of there. But of course, it's on a case dependent, and I think some of the higher numbers, the headline grabbing numbers, are oftentimes coming out of the valley. Um, but you know, it, when you think about benchmarking, it is a bit of a holistic process. You know, you can't peg yourself to just one company or just one region. Um, you know, ideally, you're looking at companies that are most relevant um, to where you are, so in your natural vicinity. Um, and then from there, you can look at other countries that have similar characteristics um, as the, the countries um, or the country that you're operating in. Um, and then from there, go more broadly about certain characteristics of the business, about the industry, the vertical. Um, but, you yeah, know, I think the valuation question is an interesting one. And the head scratching goes both ways. <laughs> yeah. So anything to add from the three of you, Ben, Min, yeah. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, very interesting point from uh, Kevin, being in a global form, I think it's, it's very useful to have these data points. I think we mentioned it uh, earlier as what is valuation at the end of the day, right? And it's a negotiation between the company and the investors. So, I mean, whether it's Copiconangan or any other company whatsoever, uh, as long as someone is willing to pay that particular price, uh, these investors would have their own reasons, whether because they think the potential of the market is huge, because uh, the founding team is incredible, and so on and so forth. And you have many, many different reasons. Um, so whether people think in this region that the potential is less, uh, I don't know. Uh, what's for sure is that the US market for, and uh, talking from my lens in B2B SaaS and so on, uh, the US market is obviously much bigger. Um, so that's one of the reasons why the valuation in that space are higher in the US, uh, but it doesn't mean that the valuations here um, are not going to catch up at some point. Uh, they already have, if you look at the valuations over the past five, 10 years, they've been raising quite steadily um, because of uh, competitiveness of this, the landscape in terms of investments, but also because uh, the market is maturing and you have more opportunities for companies to grow. So uh, over time, it's going to normalize, I would, I would say. And, um, and at the end of the day, it's still a negotiation between founders and investors. Ben, Joseph, anything to add, Ben? Yeah, I, I actually like, I first of all like to agree with the rest of the panelists. I, I, not, the head scratching is both ways. Like, uh, but I mean, the larger question is why some places have larger, crazier valuations than here. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it's true. Valuation is a negotiation and value is in the eye of the beholder. Um, now, I just, if I want to share some extra things, it, it's not only Silicon Valley that has crazy valuations. Hey, look at China. Okay. <laughs> Also, yeah, right? yeah. So what what is yeah. it? What are these people? What, what Very are, true. What are what are people thinking? Well, I don't I don't exactly know what they're thinking. But one thing you can you can see is uh, the exit landscape is different, yeah. How many Chinese startups can? How many Chinese startups can you see that have uh, IPO had uh, return venture funds very very good return versus how many US versus Southeast Asia? It's different, right? So. Whereas for, for a time, now I don't know whether it's the case now, for a time in China, certain, the, so if the market was so hot, there was a playbook. So the investors knew that if I give this valuation, I can get that valuation, I'm going to make money. Let's go. For a time, it was like that. And then you see something like this. Of course, things are changing and changing. Yeah. But one thing, I, but at least one thing you should also look at when you kind of approach this question is what is the exit landscape for the, for the venture investors? Because ultimately, all, all of us, me included, actually, we, we, yeah. we do need to survive on exit. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Ben. I think very well put. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the exit exit 
visibility in Southeast Asia is very, very lacking compared to the US. That's 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 one point I really agree with Ben. I think that um, valuation is always a mystery, so we can never explain what are the direct factors. But I think exit visibility is one of them, or, or one of the key ones, key factors. So until until we, we consistently, and I think the key word here is consistently generate uh, super normal returns for investors, our, our the valuations will, will not match the the headline numbers that we see in the West or even China, for example. Uh, I usually wrap up with this question I call like, please share your cheat sheets. But I think in this conversation, you sort of already shared, right? You expect, um, you expect good preparation. They need to have their data. They need to have their numbers in place. But any other things that you want to add specific to your organization that, you know, is like your cheat sheet and you want to give uh, sort of a sneak peek to the audience here. And uh, with that, we will wrap up. So I would like to have your answers and then, I request that once the panelists are done, please unhide yourself. We'll have this one final group picture, which we always do before we wrap up for today, right? So yes, cheat sheet, please. Anyone? No yeah, cheat sheet? Let me go yeah, first. Min. Um, yeah, Min, I think, your cheat again, sheet. It's, it's just yeah. going to be a recap and I'm not going to dwell too much into the hygiene factors but i think uh, yeah. first know your numbers um again know how much you're raising know how much is your cost base know how much is your cost of acquisition your gross margin and so on and so forth more often than not quite surprisingly founders come into meetings they don't really know their numbers and they need to scramble and you know when we ask questions uh, and again because even at series a, a yes even at series a well, they would know them okay. eventually but be prepared i think uh, especially yeah. on numbers because as we all shared, um, Series A, Series B investors, we look at unit economics a lot. Um, so know your numbers. Um, have a valuation in mind. Um, I know it's, a, again, we have talked about it a lot, but um, more often than not, again, founders say, yeah, we let the market decide, which to some extent is true because it's a negotiation. But as a founder, you should know at least a range of where you stand in terms of what you expect in terms of valuation. Um, so I think that, that's the second thing. Uh, have a very clear storyline. Uh, we mentioned that as well. Um, stretching a little bit, but uh, a five-year-old should be able to understand what you're trying to build, even if it's a technical product, because at the end of the day, you're going to have to sell it to someone, whether it's consumers or, or corporates. So it should be a simple story uh, that is everyone can understand. And, and last, it's, it's less pre preparation, but be open-minded, as we said. I think it is very, very important. It's an exchange. It's a discussion. Um, it's not only a selling process. It's really yeah. about trying to build great companies together. And it's, it's, a, it's something that takes a, a lot of people to achieve. So be open-minded. Thank you. Thank you. So the only cheat that I'd like to share is uh, ask and you shall be given. So you can always talk to our portfolio companies and ask them what has the process been for them. And then you know. Okay. <laughs> so it's as simple as asking sometimes. Yeah, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good point. Good point. Yeah. yeah. Great. Then Kevin, anything to add on? No? Well, well I, I, think, I think my panelists have covered all the stuff very succinctly. So the only cheat I can, I can leave you with is don't think about it like raising funds. Think about it like dating. Mm -hmm. It's what it is. Okay. 
Okay. <laughs> Great. Long-term and, dating. Yeah. Okay. And when you're dating, you don't want to be, you know, out in the market in a position of weakness. You know, put your strong foot forward. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So put your best foot forward. Wear your best dress. Practice your best pitch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. So now, please, everyone, do unhide yourself. Just the final few seconds. We'll take a good group picture and. I take this time to thank you, uh, thank the four of you. So Kevin, Main, Ben, Joseph, it was a wonderful, I think, chat with you all. I learned so much and I think a, quite a few of my thought processes actually, uh, you know, were, uh, were distilled, right? And thanks so much because I also had my preconceived notions on why it is like this. So uh, this was really great and especially with, uh, you know, venture debt. So uh, thanks for sharing about that, Ben. So here we are. Elise, do you want us to give the biggest smile we can, right? Waiting for <laughs> can business. This? Can we? I'm yeah. really at this, but can we do this? Okay. <laughs> okay. She's like Korea, yeah? Yeah. The, okay. the One, Korea. two, three. Great. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. So have a great uh, Friday and weekend ahead and look forward to engaging with you all in the future. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.